Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I heard this past week of a church that's not doing anything during the, uh, during the corona shutdown, um, not doing any type of live stream, any gathering, anything at all, out of fear that the congregation may like it. And then whenever everything's opened back up, they won't want, to, uh, won't want to come back to church. And I can, the thought that I had whenever I heard that was, was that's just unfathomable to me, how, how, that, would, how that would even be, even be possible. Um, I cannot wait uh, to get back in the company of God's people. And I also couldn't imagine spending times like this uh, outside of, uh, of gathering around God's Word, even in even in this way. And if you tuned in last week, you know that we're rotating our Philippians and Ecclesiastes studies so we don't miss either of these, of these, uh, these, these rich uh, um, treks through, through God's truth. Last week we're in Philippians 1, and this week we're back in Ecclesiastes 9. And as we said then, what better place to be than in Ecclesiastes when the curse is so evident all around us. And what better topic to be talking about this morning than trusting in God's wisdom to navigate that successfully. Ecclesiastes is a, is a wisdom book. And along with the three others, it provides guidance for us living outside of the garden. Proverbs teaches us wise living in all of life. Job shows us what to do when life doesn't fit in a, a nice, neat proverb. Song of Solomon teaches us how to live wisely in marriage with another sinner. And then Ecclesiastes comes along and gives us wisdom for living in a, in a fallen world. Or to say it simply, Ecclesiastes explains Genesis 3. What is it like living after the fall? And, and, and if there is a curse, how should I, how should I navigate it? Uh, you can see its, its message clearly whenever you, you look through the introduction and the conclusion of the book. That's just like if you would pick up a book from a, from a shelf and you would, you would want to, to see what it's about. You might turn to the back of the of the dust cover. Well, you can tell the theme of Ecclesiastes by reading the introduction and then going to the conclusion. And looking through both of those lenses, you'll, you'll find Solomon's, Solomon's message. And the introduction declares, life is futile and frustrating. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then Solomon drags us through a, through a trek in, in life outside the garden. And, and then he concludes the book by saying that God will bring everything into judgment. He will make right what is wrong. Life under the curse is filled with futility and frustration. Whether it's work or wisdom, philosophy or pleasure, wherever we look, we find no answer for the fall. In fact, Solomon says we find the opposite, more futility, more frustration. And thankfully, though, Solomon doesn't leave us there. He gives us a glimpse of what's coming in the end. He says, what's the conclusion of the whole matter? How should we live in light of this reality? Well, we should fear God, keep His words, because He'll bring everything into judgment. And while we live under the curse now, God has promised that there's coming a day when 
when what is, is wrong will be, will be made right. He'll straighten out the crooked things. One day he'll remove the curse. And he'll reward what is good and judge what is evil. That's exactly what Revelation 22.3 promises when Jesus sets up his glorious kingdom. The curse will be removed. There will no longer be any curse. Is there, is there a more blessed verse in all of, the, all of the Bible? You may place some alongside it, but clearly this should be close to the top. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face. But until then, until God removes the curse in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, we look to Ecclesiastes for wisdom. And when we left off, Solomon started chapter 9 by reminding us God is in control and, and we are not. And then he told us in verses 2 through 6, no one can cheat death, and death is something that we should even expect in, in, in this life. Life, though, is still full of of God's gifts to be enjoyed. He's, he's embedded in, in life, even in the cursed life, gifts to be enjoyed. And you show that you trust God whenever you enjoy those gifts. We call them guidelines to the good life in, in real life. God, through Solomon, gave us Christ-centered enjoyment in, in life in light of the curse. We're to enjoy living and food and drink and we enjoy the gift of marriage we enjoy our work and today Solomon's going to finish out chapter 9 by by showing us that while we are to enjoy these things there's a danger lurking that we need to be aware of in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 in verse 10 Solomon wraps up the, the good life list and tells us whatever our hands find to do, do it with all our might. We, we're to enjoy our work and we're to do that work with all of our might. We're supposed to enjoy that as a gift from God and do it vigorously, but we must not trust in our own abilities. Human advantages and man-made resources mean very little if God is left out of those endowments. And Solomon demonstrates this by outlining five human assets that, that appear likely to succeed, but in the end they, they, they fail. And then he gives us a history lesson beginning in verse 13 through the end of the chapter to show how trusting in God's wisdom can even overcome the, the greatest of, of odds. From an outline standpoint, verses 11 and 12 go together. It shows the folly of relying on human resources and then verses 13 through 18 shares an example of trusting in God's reason. And when you put all that together, we will call it three reasons to trust in God's wisdom. That's the message that's there. There are three reasons Solomon gives us to trust in God's wisdom. Or to say it in the negative, the error of relying on unreliable sources. You should trust in God's wisdom as you, you live the, the good life because man's advantages are unreliable sources. That's what he tells us in verse 11. You should trust in God's wisdom because man's adversities can come in unpredictable circumstances in verse 12. And then he rounds it all out with because God's abilities can bring unanticipated strength. Let's look at the first one. 
found in verse 11. The first reason to trust in God's wisdom as you live is, is because man's advantages are unreliable sources. Look, if you would, at verse 11. He says, again, I saw under the sun that the race was not to the swift and the, the battle is not to the strong or warriors. Neither is the bread to the wise nor, nor wealthy to the discerning nor favor to, uh, to men of ability. For time and chance overtake them all. After telling us to enjoy life, Solomon ends with a, with a warning about where we commonly place our, our trust. He says God has embedded three gifts to be enjoyed, but you must not drift from the source of, of those gifts. You, you must not begin to trust in the, in the gift and forget the, the giver. Now Solomon gave us five individuals at the beginning of the chapter that don't escape death. Now he gives us five ironies to prove man's abilities are a meager place to, to plant your flag. Solomon lists here in verse 11 five kinds of people we would expect to be winners, but he says sometimes they're not. They look like leaders, but they end up losers. He says the swift might not win the race, the, the strong might not, uh, might not win the battle, the, the wise might not get the best job, the discerning might not gain wealth, and the skilled might not find favor in a, in a fallen world. And the first two are in the list are physical attributes, and, and the last three are intellectual abilities. And, and they represent the two areas that human beings value the, the most, don't they? Strength and intellect. You don't believe me? Just look at who the world fawns over and who they try to emulate. Look at the heroes of the, of the fallen world. We naturally look for Saul and not, and not David. God says that we have a propensity to, to, look on the, to look on the outside and whenever he looks upon the, the heart. And Solomon's point is when we place our trust there, we're going to be deeply disappointed, deeply disappointed when we place our, our trust in unreliable sources. I'm sure you've read some articles over the past few weeks about people who have taken untested cures for the coronavirus, and instead of helping them, it, it killed them. I read on Friday that 480 people from Iran drank methanol as a cure for the coronavirus and died, 480 people. That, that's, that was what was documented. Then there was that couple from Arizona that drank fish tank cleaner, thinking it was the same thing as the malaria drug that they heard talked about on on the news as a possible cure. And of course, according to the media, Donald Trump personally killed every single one of those individuals. And when we hear stories like that, we, we shake our heads and think how crazy to try something that's so unreliable. And it is crazy to do that. But Solomon is reminding us we often do the same thing in our spiritual lives. We often trust in human, uh, human abilities that seem like advantages instead of relying on God and His Word that's trustworthy. Notice the implication in each of these ironies. Look at verse 11 again. Uh, again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift. The battle is not to the, to the strong or, or to, the, to the warriors. What, notice what's implied here. The swift thinks it's his swiftness that, that will cause him to prevail. 
Or the discerning thinks it's his discernment that will, that will bring him wealth. And the basic principle Solomon is getting across here is presumption. It, it's an expectation. The expectation embedded in those, those human abilities, those human advantages, that's what we think is, is going to, to get us ahead. We think the outcome is based on those advantages. That's true, isn't it? We expect the most capable people to have the best things in life. That's why we try to become those type of people. But Solomon says none of these things can make you immune from the fall. None of these things will, will uh, allow you to escape death. None of these things will, will inoculate you to the curse. So don't put all your eggs in that basket. Walt Kaiser gives some excellent biblical examples to prove Solomon's point. Kaiser said, who is stronger than Samson, but who was weaker before women? Who was wiser than Solomon, but, but who was more indulgent in sin? Who, who was more discerning than Ahithophel, but, but who was so easily supplanted by, by Hushai and, and his foolish counsel in 2 Samuel? And who was more learned in the ways of the Egyptians than, than Moses, and yet who obstructed justice? In, in the murder of an Egyptian. And how about the whole point of David and, and, and Goliath, right? I mean, in God's plan of things, the victory belongs to the one who battles in God's strength, not the one who carries the biggest club. It's a vain thing to trust in human qualities rather than the living God. That's what Solomon is saying. And yet that is where we often look for deliverance first, isn't it? Did you ever play uh, pickup football or basketball whenever you, were, whenever you were a kid where there was two team captains and one guy lines up on this side and one guy lines up on the rest and then they, they leave all of us scrubs in the middle and then, then the guy just sits there, you know, I, I, I pick, pick Brian, I, I pick Larry, except Brian was usually at the last of the list, not at the first. Who do they pick? Uh, who do they go after first? They, they pick the biggest, not the smallest guy. They pick the fastest, not the, not the slowest. And Solomon says we do the same thing in, in, our, in our spiritual life. And it's a foolish way to, to live, to assume that because there's what seems like human advantages or advancements, that, that's where you put your, put your weight. An unassuming godly man is better than than a combination of all of these other things if they don't know the Lord. Proverbs 21.30 tells us the, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. 1 Samuel 17 says the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the, for the battle is the Lord's. And, and not only that, all of these things that Solomon lifts here, all of these human advantages... God alone provides, the Bible says. He, he's the source even of these things. Human beings aren't the source. I mean, in, in this list in verse 11, what men hoped for, success in winning a race, victory in a battle, opportunity, prosperity, favor, the Bible says all of these things, while, while not bad pursuits in and of themselves, all of these things, God, God ultimately controls them. The Lord is the one that gives the victory in the battle. He's the one that opens the doors of opportunities. He brings prosperity. He is the one who grants favor. 
Psalm 33 tells us this. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. The horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. So you say, Psalmist, where does that man's deliverance come from? Well, he answers it. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and on those who hope for his loving kindness, his covenant love, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in, in famine. Notice it's after death and also in, in life. The deliverance is, is not only for the afterlife, but here. And then probably one that you know very well in the end of Romans 9, talking about God's sovereignty in all things. It says, so then it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but, but on God who has mercy. That's the one who ultimately controls all of these advantages. And if you can rest in that, it'll bring you a lot of peace. It'll bring you a lot of peace. I don't know if you saw it. I actually saw two stories of this past week. I'll share only one. There was a 101-year-old Italian man born during the Spanish flu who contracted the coronavirus and was released from the hospital this past week completely healthy, 101. He survived World War I and World War II and everything in between. And people are amazed by that. And you say, how did that happen? That's not supposed to happen. Well, it wasn't just because he ate healthy or was lucky. Solomon's already told us in chapter 3 how that happens and how all of these other, uh, how God meters out all of these other things that, that are in this list in chapter 11. There's an appointed time for everything. There's a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die. That's why that 101-year-old man didn't die. You know, we're not to be poor stewards of what God gives us, and, but we can't manipulate outcomes or insulate ourselves completely from the fall. God alone provides the things that people desire and, and value. He's the ultimate source. And He can be trusted to know exactly what results to bring and, and what success to withhold. Have you ever pursued something with all your might, even prayed for it, even wanted it, and, and the Lord didn't give you that success to bring it to pass only for you to realize later how thankful you are that God didn't open that door or whatever it was? If that's true, if God controls all of those things and He's wise, then how doubly foolish it is to trust in something as unreliable as human advantages and neglect the only one who can provide the very advantage that you need at the very moment in which you need it. You say, Pastor, are you saying that, that I should just give up and let Jesus take the wheel or, or let go and let God kind of, kind of thing? Of course not. Solomon just told us, whatever our hands find to do, do it with, with all of our might. Solomon's point is what you trust in. You can run swiftly, but that's not always what wins the race. And even if you do, you don't know what's coming along the racetrack while you're while you're running. Look, if you would, at, at verse 12, Solomon gives us the second reason to trust in God's wisdom. It's because man's adversities come in unpredictable situations. Man's adversities come in unpredictable situations. Verse, verse 12, moreover, man does not know his time, <clears throat> like fish caught 
in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it, when it suddenly falls on them. Do you, do you hear what Solomon's emphasizing here? Solomon says, in a fallen world, time and events happen to all of us. Even the strong man that's running the race. He says some of those events come to us quite unexpectedly, like, like a fish being caught in a net or a bird in a, in a snare. And anyone have on their calendar March 29th to be sitting at home live streaming a church service? I didn't. Life's full of unpredictable situations and circumstances. The, the Hebrew word for chance here in verse 11, at the very end of verse 11, chance overtakes them all. Moreover, uh, a man does not know his time. The word for chance, there's an event or an occurrence. Solomon's already trusted, uh, called us to trust in God's sovereignty, so he's not promoting karma here, like there's the roll of the dice. You don't know what's coming, as if it's, it's no, one is, no one's at the helm. His focus here is, though, is not on God's overworking of all things, but, but how they play out on the ground. And while not a single event is untethered from God, Solomon says we don't know what's coming. God does, we don't. And you can see that in verse 12. Man does not know his time. Solomon's told us earlier that God's designed life this way. He has designed life this way. So we won't know what's, what's coming. And we will do that. He does that so we'll trust Him. But learning to live that way can be very unnerving. Solomon describes how we feel as we experience that with a, with a pair of vivid images. He, he gives the example here of, of a fish caught in a net. He said it's like the jolt uh, in a fish when it realizes it's being taken. It, it's the, or the instinct of flight when a, when a bird is, is snared. The, the same word is used for both trapped and, and ensnared. It means to be seized suddenly. And, and that's the way life is sometimes. You're going along, everything seems fine, hunky-dory, and all of a sudden, wham, something comes up just like a fish is swimming along and it, it doesn't see the net descending over top of it. Or, or like the bird spreading its, its wings to bear down for another flap only to, be, only to be hit in a snare. So we can be planning in our things in our businesses and we can be looking for vacations one week and wake up the next week to cancellations and, and quarantine. It's unnerving, not knowing, even when you can reschedule those types of things. It's unknown. You're feeling that, even right now, and, and the Bible is talking about it. That's the way life is. It's unpredictable. And so we... Why do we think our expert planning and diligent to-do list is the, is, is the first place to go for stability rather than the Lord? Or why are we shocked whenever life moves beneath, our, moves beneath our feet? Solomon's point is no one can know the timing of life's capturing moments. And so don't trust in your certain security. Trust in God's permanent salvation. And think about it. I mean, you don't normally get a bad diagnosis when you go to the doctor expecting one. 
It's when you go for a checkup and nothing is wrong. That's whenever you get the diagnosis. Trouble never comes at a good time. Death doesn't either. Bill Riken said, life is unpredictable, its misfortunes are inevitable, often inescapable, but there is a place, Solomon says, there is a place where you can put your trust, where you can find safety. And Solomon reminds us of it next. He says the third reason to trust in God's wisdom is because God's abilities have unanticipated strength. If you would at verse 13 through 15, he gives, a, he gives an example here, an illustration of what he's teaching us. Verse 11, these ironies, things don't turn out the way that, that we anticipate, and, and then there's this unexpected circumstance of, of life, and now he's going to illustrate that for us in verse 13. Also this I came to see as wisdom under the sun. Notice he turns the page. It's a new topic, though it's connected. And it impressed me, he said. Here's the illustration. There was a small city with a, with a few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a, a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. This is an actual example of what Solomon has just proclaimed. Phil Riken said verses 13 through 15 is wisdom exemplified. Verses 16 through 18 is wisdom prioritized. And the theme of these verses are obviously wisdom. This whole section is about wisdom. The word wise or wisdom occurs seven times in verses 13 through 18. In this contrast... This shock uh, is continued, just as you would be shocked to, to, to think that the, the, the swift doesn't win the race. In verse 11, you would be equally shocked to, to expect a small city to, pro, uh, to, uh, to have victory over a great king. There was a small city with a few people and a poor man. There's the contrast. Contrasted to a great king with huge siege works, and that king's obviously very wealthy. You can also tell it's a contrast because it doesn't even give us the details of the plan that delivers the city. Solomon doesn't go into blow by blow. Here's the exact plan that the poor man followed to, to deliver because that's not his point. His point's not the plan. It's, his point's something else. Solomon's not concerned about the plan, but the unanticipated victory brought by this one man's godly wisdom. And to add an exclamation point, the city was saved by a poor beggar, somebody who's not even supposed to be in the, the blessing of, of the wisdom literature. This is a very lopsided battle, and humanly speaking, you would expect the great king to win, wouldn't you? The one with the greatest strength, the swiftest soldiers, would, they would have the upper hand, but... But that's not what happens. In this small city, with only a few in it, that's besieged by a great king with the latest armaments and military might, as one commentator said, this unstoppable king was outmaneuvered by a single poor man's 
godly wisdom. Whether this is a parable or a real situation, to Solomon it's an illustration of what he just got done teaching. Solomon says, a well-worn Bible is greater than the world's best, whatever the world's best is. A big Christ is better than a, than a bigger canon. If you can't trust in your human abilities or your precise planning, where, where can you trust? Solomon says you can trust in God. Just like this single, poor, overwhelmed, outmatched, wise man did. Can you hear the message of the gospel in that? Not directly in Ecclesiastes 9, but the echo of it, the, the theme that's there. That's the whole message of the gospel, isn't it? What seems insignificant and unassuming is actually the power of God unto salvation. Jesus Christ, the the, the Messiah did not come in the pomp and circumstance of a conquering king, but, but a lowly servant in an obscure town in Galilee. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yeah, <laughs> the Savior of the world. The New Testament says the gospel is like yeast, unseen, working in the dough. You can't see it, but it spreads, it permeates everything. It says it's like a mustard seed that looks minuscule. You have to squint to even see it, but it, goes a, it grows a great plant whenever it, whenever it sprouts. I mean, in God's wisdom, a single Roman cross with a crucified Messiah under judgment is where God meets out the just wrath reserved for sinners and opens up the only gate to heaven. That seeming insignificance, that foolishness of that, of that kind of message is exactly what the world rejects. The world wants a bombastic conqueror or, or a, a long list of sacred works that only the most dutiful devotee can achieve. That, that's what they want. They want their will, their way, their works, whatever it is, so they can boast. But God says, no. No. Just like this poor wise man that delivered a city, my salvation is given to those who have faith alone, like the trust of a child. Human beings want to trust in their wills and their abilities, but God says, you cannot have my salvation except by grace alone. And that grace comes from me. And it's usually when we're under siege, like the, that little city, that this blessed reality becomes the clearest, isn't it? Look at verse 15. There's a poor man, a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Look at the, the last half of verse 15. Yet no one remembered that poor man. No one remembered that poor man, even after he delivered it. Like the parables in the New Testament, the key hangs at the back door of, of this story. This man's wisdom, even this man is forgotten after he saved the day. The shame of the story is that no one remembered the man. 
No one remembered who this poor wise man was. Neither was he properly honored. They don't remember his name. His name's name listed here. Can you imagine the feeling in the city when this small, unprotected town is, is holed up in there with a great king and his army amassed outside? The fear and the uncertainty, knowing they're about to be crushed? Maybe how you feel when you listen to the news and all they talk about is the virus or the bodies that are coming out of a hospital? Now imagine the, the relief that the, these townsfolk felt, as Derek Kidner put it, when this amateur strategist brings off his master stroke and the, the threat is abated. They went from sure death to, to, to sudden security and deliverance. Imagine that, that, that flip of emotion. And yet, after the deliverance, they no one remembered that poor man. What will you feel like when the experts tell you that the threat is abated? It's safe. You can go out now. How will you feel whenever they find a vaccine or, or some type of, of drug cocktail that, that works? Probably the same thing this city felt. And that wouldn't be bad to feel that kind of, of rejoicing and deliverance. It's a wonderful thing. Whenever... Human abilities, even by God's providence, bring blessing to, to the world. But what Solomon's asking is, what will you be feeling six months later when life returns to normal? Will you forget the Lord's deliverance? Will you forget the one who ultimately gives men the ability to figure out a vaccine or whatever it is? As time passed, they forgot the poor man, and they gave him no honor. They didn't name him. They didn't do anything. It was like Joseph who helped Pharaoh's butler, and when both men got out of prison in Genesis 40, the butler got out and he forgot all about Joseph. Do you remember 9-11? I do. I can remember I was right here in Lynchburg, and I can remember going into from Liberty Campus going into Best Buy to watch the TV screens that they had up there because I was living in Eagle Irie at the time and we didn't have a television. Do you remember when Yankee Stadium was filled with thousands of people in a prayer meeting? When it seemed like the whole country was awakened? How long did that last? You see, we as human beings have a very short memory when it comes to God. One day we'll praise him on the mountain and it seems it could not be sweeter only to go to bed and wake up the next morning in the dumps grumbling because our coffee doesn't taste as good today as it did yesterday. We seek God with all of our hearts for a period, memorize scripture, grow for a while, and he meets us. God meets us with physical strength only, only to find ourselves three months later spiritually asleep and not even reading our Bibles. And Solomon reminds us we often seek wisdom in uh, desperate times and pay little attention to it during the rest. The rulers of the city would have paid no attention to this poor man the day before the warring king showed up. Then they paid great attention to this poor man when his wisdom delivered the day, and then they forgot about him. And Solomon is saying, don't do that in your life with the unexpected circumstances whether it's the coronavirus or whatever it is. 
And that's one of God's purposes that he has for calamity. He gets our attention, causes us to pay attention to things that we neglect when things are well. Do you think there are more people who have been praying since the outbreak? Yeah, probably. Do you think that there, there have been more people open to the gospel that, that wouldn't have been before? Probably. Do you miss, I put something really practical, do you miss gathering with God's people because you can't in a way that you didn't before? You see, God doesn't indiscriminately cause calamity. It comes because you're in a cursed world, and even then the Bible says that God controls it, but God uses it to draw our eyes toward the one who transcends it all. And then when we fall asleep and we forget, he jolts us again with something else that reminds us that, that it, I'm here, I'm the Lord, pay attention. And even when he does get our attention, we often forget him. See, we shouldn't be too hard on this city, should we? Because God could say, how could you forget the one who delivered you from your sin? See, Solomon's point in verse 16 is even now you shouldn't put your final hope in men. He tells us that we forget God, but, but there's just kind of like a, a final death nail in this trust in, in man. Here is this, this poor man in verse 16. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heard. It's a, it's a, it's a final kick toward, toward human trusting in human beings. Even this poor man, who was probably despised before this event, who, who had fame and, and honor for a period of time, even human beings forgot him then. So where should this poor man put his trust? Even now, you shouldn't put your final hope in men because the poor man who saved the day was forgotten in the long run, so wisdom is better than strength. God's wisdom. It's a final admonition that while we should apply God's wisdom, you must ultimately trust in God alone. You cannot use His gifts to manipulate yourself out of the curse and even the wisest, most godly man in the end will face death and be forgotten under the sun. But you know what the beauty is? For those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, while we will be forgotten on the earth, we'll be remembered in heaven forever. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life forever and ever. You're graven on the palms of His hands. Isaiah 49, 15 through 16. God's talking to Israel. Israel's saying, you've forgotten me. And God says, can a woman forget her nursing child, even have no compassion on the son of her womb? Possibly. Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. And the marks of the slaughter are the greatest evidence of God's love. You see, God's not forgotten you. He can't. Your prayers are stored up under the altar. Your praise will be echoed through the halls of eternity as you sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. You might be forgotten here, but you're not forgotten by God. And that's better than anything this world affords. 
be it human advantages, be it an escape from human adversity. And even when you trust God's abilities under the sun, the Lord won't forget you. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 and 18 rounds this whole thing out. It's two better than Proverbs. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of the ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than the weapons of, of war. I think the rest of verse 18 goes with chapter 10, verse 1. Do better than Proverbs. That says God's wisdom, who ultimately is Jesus Christ, is better than anything this world affords. Solomon now draws his conclusion in verses 16 through 18. He says, the gift of wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord. That's a greater asset than strength. Even if it's not honored by the masses. That's verse 16. Wisdom is better than strength. He says, wisdom is not always heeded in every day, but, but the times of crisis cause its voice to be heard. Verse 17. The words of a wise heard in quietness are, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Don't look for the one who shouts the loudest. Look for the one who calmly, steadily looks to God alone. And finally, he says, wisdom is more powerful than any human ability. Verse 18, wisdom is better than the weapons of war. Jeremiah 10, 23, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not himself, nor is it in a man who walks after his his steps. Probably a verse that you know well, 1 Samuel 14, 6. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by, by few. Proverbs 16, 9. A man's the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So where will you put your trust in uncertain times, in human advantages? I have a better idea. Not in human abilities or in analytical, analytical predictions. A better place is to put your trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are God, a very God, and that you, you overwork all things. And yet, while we have great confidence and trust in, in that, we, we often have anxiety and, and uh, wonder as these things are working themselves out on the ground, per se. But you've reminded us today where we should not place our trust. shouldn't be in human beings or abilities. It shouldn't be in, in the predictability of events. It should be in your wisdom. And you're trustworthy. And you'll not leave us nor forsake us, even in the midst of the curse. And I pray, Father, that, um, that you, would, you would help us to live that out this week. And I also pray that if there is someone who will be forgotten on the earth but has never placed their faith and trust in Christ to be remembered in heaven, that today would be the day.
They would bow the knee to Jesus, trust in Him for their salvation, lean fully upon His payment on the cross, and repent and believe and be saved. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.